You are listening to Mark Hatmaker Rough and Tumble Raconteur. This is a grab bag of old school Western martial arts, resurrected indigenous ways and empirical musings tinged with a heavy dose of respect, admiration, let's call it hero worship, for these hosses of yore. Hey crew, this is Mark Hatmaker coming to you from the Comancheria. Today's topic is, we ask the old question, can a boxer beat a wrestler? Or inverted, can a wrestler beat a boxer? We'll call this part one because uh, we'll probably return to this uh, in the future as well. Provocative question. We can, uh, again, it's a topic's been addressed many, 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 many times in the past. Just not by me, but by many. And uh, it's many times the present. It's likely to continue on in the future. And the perennial question, again, can a boxer beat a wrestler? We can rephrase that as can a striker uh, beat a grappler? So we can get out of that domain specificity because people think boxing is one thing in the sport. And they don't, you know, conclude, you know, kickboxing, uh, karate or all you know, sort of uh, striking. Now, we could, and perhaps we'll another offer a record of how often these early mixed matches occurred and all the commensurate outcomes from such uh, matches. But today, we're going to look to one sports authority who examined the same question, David Willoughby. And again, we're talking about some early days when these mixed matches were, were coming on because we got lots of information right now when we look uh, towards MMA. Now, uh, Mr. Willoughby dove deep into the historical record of boxing, wrestling, and combination matches. And combination matches with the mix of boxing and wrestling. In uh, some cases, the rule stated, like, oh, this round will be boxing and the next round is wrestling, and kind of inverting it back and forth that way, which is an interesting way to mix it up. In other cases, it was actual mixed matches where the competitors got to use whatever discipline they felt comfortable with at that time. So this basically is uh, how we see now with the mixed martial arts. Well, according to Mr. Willoughby and his studies, the question of can a wrestler beat a boxer should no longer be a question since it has already been answered several times, always in the affirmative. Now, let's uh, look to the early standout answers uh, to this persistent question. Again, and this is probably my, we're playing the odds here. I know occasionally people will point at a match and go a single match of extraordinary bias and go, well, look at this. What about that? And that shows everything is wrong. And I just say that this is an individual who doesn't understand how statistical quirks work. These are the same sort of people probably walking to Vegas, think they have a betting system that works. And, and yet Vegas still persists. And super rich gamblers all over the world do not. It is a statistical quirk. That's it, man. All right, let's go to these early uh, persistent questions. The first notable instance occurred in 1887 uh, whenever the fabulous John L. Sullivan went to the ring with his trainer, the Greco-Roman wrestling champion, William Muldoon. Sullivan started the proceedings by tripping Muldoon, which is an unusual move, good for him, going from boxing right into the wrestling. I'm sure that caught him by surprise. But before John L. could do anything further, Muldoon was back at his feet, takes a waist hold on uh, Sullivan. Muldoon slams the prize fighter to the mat so hard that Sullivan laid there. Stunned. Time for the match, two minutes. Now, might I add that the trainer in question, William Muldoon, was also in the early physical culturist who used uh, the original roadwork of warrior walking. Uh, and anyway, for more on that, you know, obviously look at this podcast or blog and look at our store to do it and, and get it right. You don't have to pound the pavement, screw up your knees and hips, kids, I'm telling you. Anyway. The next publicized encounter of this kind was when, uh, sometime during the 1890s, the then heavyweight boxing contender, Bob Fitzsimmons, thought he could uh, take the measure of the then Greco-Roman wrestling champion, Ernest Robert, but Robert uh, simply grabbed Fitz's left hand, pulled him to the canvas, applied a double arm lock, and made Fitzsimmons cry uncle. And then there was the match in 1936 between the heavyweight boxing contender, Kingfish Levinsky, love that name, and the veteran wrestler, Ray Steele. The Kingfish aimed a left hook at Steele, who ducked the punch, grabbed Levinsky, and slammed him to the mat all in 35 seconds. Now, even Jim Corbett, 
who was perhaps the cleverest of these early uh, of the early heavyweights, expressed the opinion that in such mixed matches, and I quote, nine times out of ten, the wrestler will win. Unquote. Let's repeat that. Quote, nine times out of ten, the wrestler will win. Unquote. Who are we to contradict the authority of Gentleman Jim? All this is not to say that boxing and striking is valueless. That is absurd. That's not what I'm saying. Boxing and striking has its place, of course. It is to say, though, that those who undervalue grappling, perhaps overestimate the striking game, may do so at odds with the historical record and expert opinions such as Gentleman Jim's. An assumption of, you know, well, I simply won't let that wrestler go to hold me. I'll cold cock him before he can get to me. Well, I'm going to offer that is exactly what each of the above examples thought. Likely, these were probably better strikers than you and I, okay? So I'm not just casting aspersions there. I'll, I'll say, hey, Gentleman Jim, better eye for this than I do. And he says, hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, bet, the, I'm going to bet the wrestler on this. <laughs> Who am I to say, well, he's wrong, just because there might be a statistical, statistical quirk here and there where you know, the inverse does happen for the most part, though. He's telling you here's how to play the odds. Now, what are we to do with this information? Well, not a thing if you do not desire. I mean, you can look at the ratios and go, hmm, that's interesting. You move on. Now, everyone should train as you make you happy. You get one go around in this life, so you do what you enjoy. Now, if your training is inside a ludic bubble, meaning game style of, uh, you're not allowed to do that, whether the not allowed is grappling or head kicks or cartwheels or what have you, whatever the, uh, the quirk of your particular game that you play is, you know best what fits your chosen game. And I repeat, though, that is a game. If... If your focus is even obliquely related to the scrum of reality outside of game rules, well, then I would say everyone needs to be able to grapple, at least a little. Ignoring this aspect while making claims for tactical readiness is, well, puzzlingly at odds with reality, all right? Uh, and I know some people say, well, grappling is over complex. And I think, well, if you, whenever you think about striking, think about the footwork, the shifting, the moving, and, and the juking and jiving. There's a lot of science going on here as well. It's just because it's the one you're unfamiliar with, it seems overcomplicated. If one desires to train as an old school combination fighter, which is the focus of our black box training program, which is com uh, combination fighting of the old school style, mixing the boxing and the wrestling and the old school frontier rough and tumble. Well, in that case, uh, how should we train these things? I would offer the Pareto principle advice of using the 80-20 rule, which is making 80% of your training grappling oriented, be that ground, clinch, takedowns, anti-takedowns, escapes, counters, etc. And that's the other misnomer that people hear grappling, they think automatically ground, not necessarily uh, clinch and anti-takedown. This is a huge part of grappling training. So I'm saying 80-20 rule and 20% of your training, hardcore striking. Uh, we got to keep in mind, though, uh, I just advised 80-20, where Jim Corbett would weight that training ratio more towards the 90-10 ratio. But me, hell, I like throwing hands too much to cut back much more than that. And for those who still lull themselves into thinking, you know, well, grappling's important, but all you got to do to counter that stuff is, well, then uh, let's continue on. So we have some wiser consideration in that area. So let's talk about counter-grappling, anti-grappling, what strikers should be doing against grappling so you don't have to learn grappling. And you already have, uh, you can hear that sarcasm dripping right there because you're going, I think it's a foolish way to think. Let's begin. Uh, let's say uh, you're, you're an instructor and a guy says to you, what do I do if a guy has me in this hold? Or ask you, what do I do if a guy knows jujitsu? What do I do if a guy's a good wrestler? All right, now, instructors might, such as myself, probably people like yourself, yourself get questions like these all the time. The questions usually have a simple formulation where the interrogator, not quite aware yet due to an experience that they have posited quite a vast open-ended query. The inexperienced questioner is never at fault for questions along these lines. But here's where the quibble begins, at least in my mind. Any answer along the lines of, well, all you have to do is just, uh, well, the implication that there is a simplistic answer to a largely 
two of large physical endeavors shows a good deal of short-sightedness or a staggering amount of hubris. I mean, we never succumb to such simplistic answers to encompassing questions and other physical demands. For example, if our naive uh, questioner asks, well, what if I'm playing football and he has the ball? See? Uh, that immediately, you, you want to start corralling that question down with your own series of counter-questions. I mean, who's playing? What's your position? What down is it? A quarter of the game are we in? Yeah, yeah, on and on and on. If someone asks that same question in a sports call-in show, well, if I'm playing football, he has the ball. And you heard someone say, well, all you have to do is, you would know immediately that the person answering is new to this planet, or at the very least, new to the game of football. All right? Now, back to the title of the topic. Counter-grappling involves so many factors when hit with the question of, what do I do if... You, you got to hone in exactly what is needed in the exact circumstances. Now, we're getting a bit closer to a cogent answer, but even here, we need to know uh, where, if someone says, what, what do I do if a guy's got me in a crossbody ride? I mean, what do I do about that? I mean, that's a, the, the question's getting a little bit more corralled, but then we need to know, is, uh, was the, high, the guy on crossbody, is a low rider, is a high rider, is a line rider, do they own the crossface, do they own the underhook, are they running knees, outriggers, or hip cuts? With uh, without any of this information, my answer to the uh, I'm caught in a crushing uh, body lock. What do I do? All you got to do is this. That's just bullshit. I mean, th- you can't answer simplistically this way. That'd be like, what do we do in boxing? What if he throws a punch? Hmm. Okay. Right. The backbone, the backbone of counter grappling presumes at least a good baseline knowledge of what grappling is, and yet. And yet, some practitioners of combat arts or sciences, and I'll say those, uh, those that's in scare quotes because if hmm, want to skip a good understanding of the game, I find this curious domain-specific thinking. One would never assume that one could do well against, let's say, a boxer, a Thai boxer, without having any striking experience. We see that that would be ludicrous. One must have some knowledge of the technology of the game domain we're seeking to thwart. Knife defensive tacticians well understand that to have a snowball's chance in hell of defending against the knife that one must train the blade itself to a good baseline competence to even begin garnering an appreciation for what the uh, blade can do. And then and only then can the counter blade concepts uh, begin as an overlay to practitioners own blade experience. So you got to understand a little bit what's going on. Counter blade strategy in a vacuum where one has never used a blade. Well, that's insanity. It is akin to asking to and uh, answering you. All you got to do is the all you have to do advice, though, in counter grappling usually takes some form of bottom side uh, buzzsaw. That is utilizing the bite, the gouge, the rip, the tear, the hair pulling, groin seizing, all conducted from the underside of the grappler. So there we see the grappler's taking me down. You know, all I got to do is I start doing this, man. He's, he's done. His game is nullified. Man, that is simplistic, wishful buzzsaw thinking. See, in theory, what's happening is the befuddled and blindsided grappler will just give up their superior position and they will fall prey to the manifestly awesome striking ability of the formerly down-and-out individual. Oh, well, and do I even need to say this? But this is some constricted, contorted, and fantastical thinking for many reasons. Let's address two here. Reason one, let's go back to her feet. Uh, where many who pose counter-grappling advice are more comfy. Let's assume you are engaged in a straight-up boxing match, and let's also assume that you are the superior boxer with legit, uh, legit sweet skills. Man, you're good with the hands, all right? Now, let's say your opponent in this hypothetical match doesn't like how she's on the bitter end of this engagement, so she gets the ante and starts adding some stink outside the boxing vocabulary. You know, an elbow here, a knee there, that sort of thing. And again, assuming this match is for all the marbles, do you, the superior boxer with all these sweet skills, do you fold up your tent and go home because this inferior opponent be dazzled and befuddled you with their reach for the dirt? Does all your drilled-for timing, distance, footwork, evasion, training, power, finesse disappear because of a minor expansion of their dirty arsenal? 
Hell no. No, you are now free to use all your superior skills with the addition of an enhanced and vicious arsenal, making your superior game officially deadly, all right? The opponent switched to dirt did not negate you. It enabled you and empowered you. So you've got the sweet boxing skills. They do something a little dirty. You can be even dirtier, plus have all the power and training behind it. All right, same thing with the grapplers. Reason number two, by this same bit of thinking, are we to assume that if we are facing someone powerful and skillful enough to take us to the ground against our will and have their way with us, are we to assume that if we go for the bite or the gouge, their game is suddenly riddled with holes and negated? Hell no, not by a long shot. That same superior grappler who put you on your ass and kept you there is now informed by your grab for the dirt. They became, the game becomes one of, oh, we're playing that one now. And just as with the superior boxer who is allowed to add more grit, the grappler who adds more grit is going to be grittier and nastier. Uh, and the bottom player wish the game were back in the sedate world of mere holding you down and having the life squeezed out of you. If an all-you-gotta-do counter-grappling enthusiast doubts this, try this simple but safe-ish test. Glove up and allow a grappler to slap you in the mat and hold you down. Now, you go to work with punches, hammer fists, round knuckles, overhand slaps, but allow the grappler the same gloved-up privilege. See where that gets you. All the tests I've ever been around with that sort of thing, it's always the top man. And if you were to think to yourself, well, yeah, that's with gloves, man, but if I were to, yeah, go ahead, repeat the test. Sign a waiver, but repeat the test and allow the grappler the same privilege of whatever dirt you want. They're allowed to do it. As beloved, so below. All right. But I'm going to tell you right now, bet the above. All right. Now for a uh, print version of this material, I'll put the links in the show notes. And if you actually want to get to work on whether it's your striking or your grappling, uh, 80-20 rule, 90-10 rule, or hell, 100% on one or the other, go with your privilege, man. I'm not your dad. Enjoy yourself. Go over to our website, www.extremeselfprotection.com, and have a look at all of our products. And if you would like to get uh, on the old school bandwagon, consider our Black Box uh, Brotherhood, where you jump in there and with our monthly templates, the man, huge discounts material just coming at you all the time but beyond that thanks for putting your ears on this crew take care of yourself well if you dig what we just discussed today uh, i'd like to invite you to like and subscribe to the podcast hell support it if you want i'm not your dad do what you want and if you're a glutton for punishment uh, just visit our website extremeselfprotection.com you'll find links to the blog all of our products and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more pages of like musics. <laughs>